Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. As we we enter into God's word today, uh, I wanted to focus on this idea uh, that a crisis can actually be advantageous at times. I I know it sounds counterintuitive, but, but sometimes a crisis can actually provide the conditions for something to happen that otherwise might not have happened if, if that crisis didn't ensue. In fact, there's a, a lot of really important human advancements that came as a result of, of a crisis at the time. Uh, in fact, uh, I found out that ambulances, ambulances were actually invented and developed during the Napoleonic Wars. I found out that during the, uh, the, 1918, uh, the 1918 flu pandemic, there was research that was started then because of that pandemic that inspired the research that led to the discovery of DNA, right? You think about this pandemic and, and there's research that's happening and who knows what research that might inspire and what that will be able to produce if you think of everything that we're able to do because we know about DNA. I also learned this week that, that Isaac Newton, right, Isaac Newton developed his theory of gravity while self-quarantining in his home during a pandemic. I don't know what you've been doing while you've been self-quarantining, but I haven't been changing the world uh, quite like he has. No, but seriously, his university was shut down because of the bubonic plague. He had to go home, and he was studying from home, self-quarantining, when this whole you know, development of theory of gravity, gravity started to take place. And, and there was this, this one woman, a real hero. She, uh, she was in her kitchen one day, and crisis broke out. She was baking cookies and couldn't find any. She had run out of of the chocolate powder to make her chocolate cookies. And so she took a chocolate bar and she broke up the pieces thinking that it would melt into the dough and make a chocolate cookie. And it didn't. Instead, it made a chocolate chip cookie. And forever, the world was changed because we got the chocolate chip cookie because a woman had a crisis. Uh, But crisis, crisis, in all seriousness, crisis can actually provide the opportunity for something good, something important to happen, for advancement to take place. And as we continue in our series, Don't Waste a Crisis, we're going to see that crisis can also provide the opportunity and unique opportunities for spiritual advancement. And we're going to be in uh, Philippians today, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul, just to give you a little bit of the context, he's actually writing to a church in Philippi, to the Philippians, uh, hence the name. And as he's writing, he's sitting in a prison cell. He had been arrested for preaching the gospel. And, And even at this time, it's likely that he is currently chained to a guard, 
right? That, that's his, his existence now. He's chained to a guard like 24-7, and he's writing this letter to the Philippians from the position of crisis. And look what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and he's talking about the, his pri- imprisonment, the fact that he is spending his days in prison, and he's hopeful to get out, but he doesn't know if he's going to get out. In fact, a later imprisonment, where he's going to be again in prison Rome later on, is going to lead to his execution. He doesn't know how this is going to end, but he says this, what has happened to me, this crisis that I'm in, has actually serve to advance the gospel. Actually. I love that word actually. Uh, the, the Greek word that's used there, it's like kind of this, this word meaning, you know, contrary. Like contrary to what you might have expected. It actually served to advance the gospel. And, and notice he doesn't say that it, it's actually served to uh, allow the gospel to be maintained at its current level. No, no. He says it has advanced. Like the gospel is going farther now because of this crisis than before the crisis. It's advancing the gospel. And we're going to see in, in Paul's letter here that the gospel is able to advance in two unique ways in the midst of crisis. First, we see that, the, that crisis can advance the gospel in your soul. And in a really special way, crisis can provide the opportunity for the gospel to advance in your soul. Look what Paul says. He says, as a result, of his imprisonment. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, I want to focus on this word become for a second. It has become clear. Because this word become, it means that there's like time to this, right? As if it wasn't clear at one point and then it became increasingly clear to everyone, right? That he is in chains for Christ. Now, the reason that strikes me is that Paul was put in prison. He was arrested for preaching about Jesus. Like that that was clear from day one. Everyone knew he was arrested for preaching about Jesus. But somehow over time, it has become clear that he is in chains for Christ. Because there is a difference. There's a difference between, you know, being put in prison for preaching Jesus and everyone knowing, everyone knowing that I'm here for Christ, that I am for Christ. This is what is, everyone sees as a result of Paul's crisis, that he is for Christ. In fact, uh, you might have heard that there were, there were some churches several weeks ago in other parts of the country when things were on pause in their different states. They said, you know, we don't care what the government says. We're going to open our doors and we're going to meet anyway. And in, in theory, I don't think anybody was arrested, but in theory, one of those pastors could have been arrested for preaching Jesus, for opening their doors and preaching Jesus. And that would have been known from day one. But the question is, would it become clear that they were arrested for Jesus? Because you, you know it's possible for somebody to be preaching Jesus, arrested for preaching Jesus, but not really be in chains for Jesus. It's possible that they could be in chains because of their desire to fight for their religious rights and freedoms or, or their right to assemble or some other cause. And, and as they're pressed, what comes out shows what they're for. And for Paul, he's in prison and he's in the midst of this crisis. And what is oozing out of him is convincing everyone around him that Paul is for one thing. He is for Jesus Christ. Because as Paul is in prison, it's not just what's on his his lips. It's not just that he's talking about Jesus. Anybody can talk about Jesus. But what's coming out of him is the attributes of Jesus. People are seeing Jesus squeezed out of Paul as this crisis puts pressure on him. And I, I, I don't know what's been kind of oozing out of you in this crisis. 
And, and the crisis looks different for everyone, and there's different aspects of this that have been more pressing and more stressful and more anxiety-inducing for uh, different people in the midst of this season. But what's been, been kind of coming out of you in the midst of the crisis? As you read through uh, Philippians, you'll actually see Paul reference a lot of the attributes of Jesus. Like he'll talk about Jesus, uh, his selflessness, how he, he valued others above himself. And he'll talk about how uh, Jesus' humility, how he came and he served and he humbled himself. He'll, he'll talk about doing things without grumbling or complaining. He'll talk about a pursuit of holiness. He'll talk about, about a peace, a kind of peace that just tr- transcends understanding. It surpasses our circumstances, a contentment and a joy in any and every situation. He even talks about the mind, how our thoughts Right? They, the thoughts, if they're following Jesus, will have these thoughts that are pure and noble and, and right and good. And, and as you've been in the midst of this crisis, is this what's oozing out of you? Like as you get pressed, is that what's coming out? Or perhaps as you've been pressed in the midst of this crisis, you've seen some other stuff oozing out of you. You've seen selfishness instead of selflessness. That instead of wanting to serve, you've had this desire to be served. That there's been grumbling and complaining. There's been a lack of peace, a lack of joy, a lack of contentment. Perhaps for you, it's been in your mind. That your thoughts, the things that have been kind of occupying your mind, they are not pure, they are not noble, they aren't good or true or right. That as you've been pressed... Things have been coming out of you. And it's easy in these moments for us to want to blame the crisis and say, well, it's the crisis fault. That's what's drawing it out of me. It's drawing these kind of evil things out of me. And in a sense, that's true. The crisis might be drawing it out of our souls, out of our hearts, but the crisis didn't put it there, right? The crisis might draw stuff out of our hearts, but it didn't put it there. It's like, like a lemon. <clears throat> so if I squeeze this lemon... The juice that's going to come out is going to be sour and distasteful. If I want to, of course, make lemonade, I have to add other ingredients to make it even drinkable. But as I, I squeeze the lemon, the lemon can't say, oh, you know, Trevor, it's your fault that this juice is sour. I mean, it, it'd say, Trevor, it's your fault that this juice is being squeezed out, but it can't blame me for the, the, the sourness of the juice. It's that juice is in the lemon to begin with. And as we're in the midst of this crisis and you've been getting squeezed, it it can be tempting to say what came out is because of the crisis, but really it's been there all along. It's just that the crisis drew it out. It squeezed it out of us, but it's part of us. A few weeks ago, Lindsay and I uh, were kind of laying out our plans for the day, and I was was just really stressed at the time. Uh, There were things on my plate, and I had meetings all day, and putting out fires and just feeling emotionally exhausted and drained. It was a a tough time. And and I knew that I was going to be like working well into the evening, trying to get all of this done and and all all of that. And turned out Lindsay also had some like pressing deadlines that day, things she needed to get done for her job. And uh, also we have a 15-month-old who isn't super self-sufficient at this point. I don't know what her deal is. Like, she can't watch herself or feed herself or change herself. Like, come on, you're 15 months. Get with it. Uh, so we're trying to figure out the day. And I, I came up with what I, uh, what I thought was a pretty reasonable plan. I thought, how about I do my work uninterrupted and you, Lindsay, do your work and watch Kara? 
which I thought was reasonable. Uh, for some reason, she didn't think that was uh, quite as reasonable, and she kind of pushed back on that idea a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I kind of snapped at her. And I was like, I don't know if I've, I've snapped at her like that in like the seven plus years that we've been married and something came out of me in that moment and immediately I apologized and, and what I wanted to do is and I think the words even came out of my mouth saying I don't know where that came from I don't know what happened that, that somewhere I don't all of this stuff going on it just kind of something's going on and it bu- bubbled out of me but I wanted to distance myself from it as if that's not that, that's not really me but the reality is I know exactly where that came from it came from my heart And in times of peace, yes, maybe I'm able to kind of like keep it at bay. And maybe the crisis may help draw it out, but it was there all along. I was squeezed. And as I was squeezed, what came out was was sour and distasteful. And in that moment, I have an opportunity. An opportunity to actually advance the gospel into an area of my heart that I didn't even realize was off. See, crisis can provide these opportunities to reveal sour a- aspects of our heart, things that maybe we, we don't want to admit, we're, we're kind of ashamed or embarrassed to admit, but if we do, the gospel can actually go in and do this, this soul work, deep soul work, if we're willing to admit that this is me. I love the, the way that Martin Luther King Jr. said it. He, he said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. See, in these moments where we're squeezed and that sour juice comes out of us, that's actually the true me. But then we see Paul, and when Paul gets squeezed, he's not a lemon. Paul, he's like an orange, right? When you squeeze an orange, what comes out is sweet and delicious. You don't need to add anything to this. You get to just drink it. I'm not going to because my hands are filthy. <laughs> but as he's getting squeezed, what's coming out of him is something, something sweet. The, the attributes of Jesus are coming out of him. And, and I know for you, there's going to be moments where, where, yes, the attributes of Jesus are coming out, but there's other sour moments. And seize these opportunities to say, you know what, that is the real me. And I don't want to admit it, but there's something in my heart and I want, to, I want to advance the gospel into these areas of my soul that maybe I was blind to before. And this is so important. We're going to actually cycle back to this in a few minutes. But before we do, I want to jump to the second uh, opportunity that crisis affords us. Because crisis can also advance the gospel in your sphere. This is what Paul says next. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. All of us, we we have a a sphere of influence, right? We have people around us, people that are seeing what we're doing and hear what we're saying, all of that. Paul had his sphere of influence, even in prison, people that were watching him. And as a result of seeing him, they had this confidence in the Lord to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, there, there's something admittedly kind of counterintuitive about this. So Paul preaches the gospel. He gets thrown in prison, and people say, I want to do what he did, which sounds crazy, right? Like, you just got thrown in prison. Now, more people wanted to follow in your footsteps. But what we see is the reason they didn't want to proclaim the gospel because it was fear, right? They were afraid. And, of course, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of, of the crisis that might ensue. And the reason we fear crisis is because 
we're afraid that the crisis is going to rob us of our joy, right? Perhaps right now you're in the midst of this crisis and you feel like this crisis has robbed you of your joy and you don't want to face another crisis because this fear, you want to protect your joy. But then we see Paul full of joy. Look at, look at what he says next. He says, it's true that some preach, gospel, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. It says the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. And look at re- the reason why. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So there's people out there preaching the gospel in vain just to make Paul's life even more miserable, make the crisis even more severe for Paul. And he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So here's Paul in in the midst of crisis. Other people are trying to make this crisis more severe and Paul's over here rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And what he is showing the people in his sphere of influence is that you don't need to fear the crisis. The crisis may come, but it can't rob you of your joy. It's not robbing me of my joy. I'm sitting here, I am rejoicing. I'm as happy as ever because the gospel is advancing even in the midst of this crisis. And crisis, it provides us this unique opportunity, this incredibly unique opportunity to exhibit that the crisis doesn't need to be feared. It's a a unique opportunity to inspire other people through our joy, right? Nobody, Nobody wanted to endure prison. Like, that's not what people wanted. But people wanted the joy that Paul had. And there's something, th- this can only happen in crisis. Because if, if you are smiling ear to ear and you're posing with your beautiful family on a beach and the sun's setting and you're on some exotic island somewhere and you know, people see that joy in you, nobody's inspired by that. Like, they might envy you for that. They might want to be in your like, circumstances. They want to experience what you're experiencing. But, but nobody's inspired by that. When you're in the midst of crisis and then there's that smile on your face, that inspires people. It actually reminds me of my good friend, Anna. Anna was a a normal teenage girl and then crisis struck her life. And she decided that she was going to seize the crisis. She wasn't going to waste it. And she, through this crisis, took advantage of the opportunity to become an inspiration to others. Here's her sharing her story. The short story is I shouldn't be alive today. And I don't know if I'll be alive tomorrow. I was diagnosed when I was 17 years old, during the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I noticed that one side of my rib cage was sticking out further than the other side. So I went to my grandfather, who's a doctor, and I asked him why. He immediately asked, ordered that I get a CAT scan, followed by a series of tests and eventually a diagnosis of stage 4 neuroblastoma. I received round after round of chemotherapy, endured a 12-hour surgery, and had over 40 rounds of radiation. I lost all of my hair, I had tubes sticking out all over me, and I lost 40 pounds. In spite of these very intense treatments, my cancer did not respond. After months and months of grueling treatment, I still had just as much cancer as when I had started. My cancer had started in my abdomen and both legs. And then it spread to both knees, both arms, both shoulders, my liver, my lung, the lining of my lungs, my pancreas, my right kidney, my lymph nodes, and eventually to my spine, which causes tremendous pain. 
Through these difficulties, I came to appreciate every day in God's presence and seeing God in every moment also helped me recognize a larger purpose for my life. I've needed God to get me through just about every single day of my life and I've seen God do some remarkable things. I knew God as my rock, always there fulfilling my deepest desire to just be with Him. I realized that being in God's presence, even with cancer, is better than being cured. God has given me a peace about my life and He has given me a peace about my death. I know that God has a purpose for my life and he, I'm convinced that if I'm to die, God will have a purpose in my death. If it brought glory to God, I'm okay with that. The future is God's and the process is God's and this journey with God has been amazing. My prayer is that the peace and the joy that I found during these hard times will encourage you to rest fully in the presence of God. Nobody saw Anna and said, oh, I want her cancer. Look, clearly she's, she's happy and full of joy. Nobody said, oh, give me cancer. Of course not. But countless people, countless people were inspired by her because they saw her in the midst of her crisis with a kind of joy, a real joy that said, maybe the crisis isn't so bad. Maybe I don't need to fear that the crisis stealing my joy. Maybe there is something there that I, I can achieve. And, and so as we stand in our crisis, we are actually given a unique opportunity to advance the gospel in our sphere, to be an inspiration to others when we have a true abiding sense of joy, even in the midst of our crisis. But of course, in order for this to happen, our joy needs to be sincere, right? It requires an authentic joy. It's not just about putting a smile on your face in the midst of this season, right? You can't do that. I mean, even if you could, you can't sustain that long term, right? You're going you're gonna to crash down. But when it's a real joy, that smile will endure this picture uh, here of Anna is a couple years after that video recording. And uh, Anna is sitting in a, uh, a hospice bed in her home. And she, uh, at this point, her legs were no longer working. Uh, so she'd been sitting in this bed for, for two months, really wasn't able to leave, just waiting, literally waiting to die. And and here she is, she's actually with a, a group of teenage girls from her church that she continued to minister to from her hospice bed every Wednesday night up until that Wednesday when she finally passed. But this smile is sincere. It's not like her putting on a smile. I, I, if I have my facts right, I saw her earlier that day and, and that smile was on her face because it was real. She had a sincere joy, and that sincere joy in the midst of crisis inspired so many others. But it needs to be sincere. And Paul, the reason he was able to have this joy in prison was because his joy was sincere. And as we continue to read on, we see what his joy was in. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, right? That's what we saw before. He, he, to live is Christ. Everyone knew that in prison. He was for Christ. And he says to die is gain. 
And, and here's why dying is gain. He says, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. That's why death is gain, because he gets to be with Christ. So for him to live is Christ. To die is to be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus will bound on account of me. Paul loves Jesus. Like, he's in love with Jesus. He's head over heels in love, and there's so much joy. And his only reason for living is to share that joy, because it actually increases his joy, right? He, he gets more joy out of Jesus when other people share in that joy. It actually reminds me of Kara. So my daughter Kara, whenever she hears her favorite song, this is what happens. Look at that face. It's a jam. <laughs> this is her. Every time she hears her favorite song, she's just overcome with joy. But what she does right away, every time she, she makes eye contact with Lindsay or me, because she wants us to see, she wants us to share in her joy. She is overjoyed and she wants to make sure that she's not alone in this. She wants to share it with someone else. And this is Paul. He's just, he loves Jesus so much. He's so overjoyed and he wants to share it with Jesus. This is his whole life. And I know for you, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and there isn't much joy. And I don't say this to, to shame you or anything, but, but we need to be honest about this. Maybe there isn't a sincere and authentic joy in Jesus. For Paul, there was, and that joy sustained him. And, and as you read through the New Testament, and Paul wrote several letters of the New Testament, as you read through Paul, you, you can see where his joy comes from. And it starts with him understanding that he is the worst of sinners. Paul said this of himself, the worst of sinners. Just crazy to think about. Just pause for a moment. I want you to bring to mind, who is the worst sinner that you can think of? The worst sinner. For probably the majority of you, a politician jumped to mind at this point. For some, it might be somebody on the left, the other somebody on the right. But you have that word, and Paul says, no, 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 they're not. I'm the worst sinner. And this might seem like hyperbole, but I don't think it is. Because I, I think for Paul, he really is the worst sinner that he knows. And, and it's because, let's be honest, I can, I can uh, assume what's going on in your heart. I can make assumptions about these things. But I, I know what's going on in my heart. And when I'm honest with myself and I see the thoughts that come to my mind, and the, sure, maybe I don't act on them, but believe me, I want to at times. And I don't because it's not right. But, but there's something inside of me, and I, I know this. There are things about me you will never know but I know me in a way that you never will. And as I see these things, and as I, I come to terms with these things, I realize I'm worst. I am worse off than I thought. I'm actually the worst sinner that I know. I can make assumptions about others, but I'm the worst sinner that I know. And this might seem like, why, why would this bring Paul joy? This seems like a big downer, right? But this isn't all Paul said. See, the, the full sentence in 1 Timothy 1 is, Christ Jesus came into, world, into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. See, Paul knew Jesus came to save him from being the worst sinner, to save him from this, to bring about his, his salvation. And the worse off the sin, the greater the experience of salvation. Like if I, I came to you and I said, hey guys, I, I love you. Because I love you so much, uh, I wanted to pay off your debt. In fact, I did. I paid all of your debt, all of it, all of your like school debt, all of your credit card debt, paid off your mortgage. You are debt-free. 
for some of you, you'd be like, I actually don't have any debt. That doesn't do anything for me. So there won't be much joy in that. For others of you, you'd be like kissing my feet because the, the debt is crippling, right? But imagine, imagine for all of you that you, you had this amazing, you were $1 billion in debt, like a level of debt that meant you were going to be destitute for the rest of your life. And I came and I paid that debt for you. But then imagine you found out that in order for me to pay that debt, it made me destitute. That, that I had to become poor so that you could be debt-free. See, originally you would be grateful, but now, now there would be a sense of awe and a love. See, for Paul, he saw Jesus and he knew his debt. And he saw Jesus paid that debt. And he saw what Jesus did to pay that debt. And this brought Paul so much joy. Because he knew he was the worst of sinners. And now he knows he's a child of God. He's the bride of Christ. And he's his chosen beloved. He went from the worst to the best in God's eyes on account of Jesus and Jesus sacrificing his life for him. And this brought Paul so much joy. Does it bring you joy? See, this is why we come back to that first opportunity that crisis affords us. It gives us this opportunity to advance the gospel into our souls because it gives us the opportunity to see sin squeezed out of us that we didn't know was there. And maybe along the way, we do feel worse. We feel more shame. But Jesus says, no, 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 I paid that debt. I took that shame and it was my joy to do it because I love you. Don't feel the shame. Don't feel the debt. I paid it all. And the, the more we lean into this, the more real it becomes and the more joy we get on account of it. See, for Paul, this wasn't theology. This was reality. And it brought him this abiding sense of joy. And perhaps, perhaps this, it's too late for this crisis. Perhaps you've been in the midst of this and there has been no joy. There's been complaining and people have seen it. And you know what? You're not going to be an inspiration to anybody in this crisis. But... But it's not too late. Don't waste this crisis because you can do the soul work where you can recognize, yeah, you know, maybe I missed the opportunity here. Maybe I need to do this, this work of acknowledging and advancing the gospel to these areas of sin in my life and realize Jesus died for that. He paid that debt. It was worse than I thought, but he paid for that one too. And as you wrestle with that, it stirs up this joy so that you'll be prepared for the next crisis. So in the next crisis, you'll have this joy in Christ so that you can be an inspiration to others and you can see the gospel advance in your sphere of influence. One of the practices that Christians have for coming to terms with the, the gravity and the weight of our sin and the, the reality of what it cost Jesus to pay that debt is the table of communion. And so as we, we close out our service, I, I want to invite you to join with me as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because here we get to, to say, yes, I am the worst of sinners. There was a debt that is insurmountable, and Jesus paid it all, and he paid for it with his life.